Good morning and welcome. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray that you have been encouraged this morning as you have readied yourself to uh, to attend the gathering. Uh, if not, if you find yourself, as many of us do sometimes, in a situation where we're maybe discouraged or harried or whatever it is, I pray that you will be encouraged or have been encouraged so far by our worship before today. That here at here at Grace Bible Church, we're committed to the preaching of the Word of God. We believe that God has designed His Word, that He uh, wants His Word to be publicly proclaimed to His people. And we also believe that, uh, that systematically working through the text, verse by verse, is the most effective way to do that, to preach the Word. That doesn't mean you can't preach topically at times. We do, we do that. But we also, we also preach, I mean, we primarily preach verse by verse. Uh, if you wrote a letter to someone that you love, if you wrote that letter, you would expect them to read it beginning at the beginning, right? You know, dear so-and-so, and they would read through the bottom, you know, they would read line by line, word by word. And if you, if you love that person, you would cherish every word that they wrote, right? You would, you would cherish it. You wouldn't want those people who, you wouldn't want the, the reader to take your words out of context. You would want them to cherish every word. You would want them to understand your intended meaning as you wrote the letter. Well, the same goes for preaching a text. Our Lord intends for us to understand His intended meaning uh, of the text. Here at GBC, then, we are committed to expository preaching. Uh, again, there may be times we choose to, uh, to preach a topic, and, and there also, uh, during an expository sermon, we'll use verses as reference. But in both cases, we do our best to understand the author's intended meaning of the passages that we use. We firmly believe in the, the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. We we join the Apostle Paul in believing and declaring that Scripture is God-breathed. Peter says pretty much the same thing in 2 Peter 1.20, For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Therefore, we are persuaded at Grace Bible Church that effective preaching of God's Word is empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And He blesses His Word. Now, I bring all that up because this morning we're embarking on a long journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, a few months ago, I finished Ephesians, then we studied uh, the, the book of Jonah, then the tiny uh, letter to Philemon before we studied Genesis 1 and 2 for the summer. And today we find ourselves on the precipice of beginning this incredible study. I, I hope that I will have give you some justice or give this study some justice of how incredible it is, uh, the study of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry through the eyes of Matthew. We have titled this series, The King and His Glory. In his Gospel, Matthew presents Jesus as the glorious King. Now, as we study this amazing book, you will come to see His power and His majesty, or at least that is uh, my prayer as we begin. In the words of uh, J.C. Ryle, he says, the more clearly we see Christ's power, the more likely we are to realize gospel peace. End quote. 
I believe that. The more clearly you see His power, the more clearly you understand who He is, the more likely you will experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. So as we begin this series, I want you to realize true gospel peace. Therefore, I encourage you to join me in a few important tasks. Cultivate the preaching of the Word of God by being here, by attending, by, by coming, by sitting under the Word of God on a regular basis. Be here and be ready to soak in the truths we mine together from God's Word. Now, I can tell you, you will be stunted in your growth if you're not exposed regularly to the truths of Scripture. And there's something special about gathering together and hearing the Word of God together because, because as we do so, we have conversations with one another and, and we love one another and, and we begin to discuss those truths with one another. And the Holy Spirit works through that. Also cultivate the preaching of the Word of God through fervent prayer. Pray for the ministry of the Word in this church. Pray for the Holy Spirit to enliven your heart, to hear the Word of God, and enliven the hearts of your brothers and sisters to, to hear the Word of God and to, to heed it, to, take, to do it, to do what it says. Pray that the unbelieving, whether they are here or whether they listen online, maybe even years down the road, pray that they'll come to know the Lord Jesus through the ministry of, the, of His Word and the preaching of the Gospel. Also, respond. Respond to the preaching of His Word. Live the truth. Live the truth of His Word. Love the truth. And share them. Share the truth. Share the truth. Trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. His work may seem imperceptible to you on a week-by-week basis. I promise you, I promise you that we don't have the, the uh, pizzazz of other ministries. We don't. And if you look at it on a week-by-week basis, if you look on a daily basis, you might not even see the difference. But we must trust that He will use His Word to do His work in His timing according to His will. And when we look back, when we look back, we will see the, the, the work of the Spirit. We will clearly see the work of the Spirit, and we can be encouraged by that work. Be a people who understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit and recognize that preaching is empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Learn to discern the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the true work of the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit's work, again, may not be flashy, so don't focus on outward works such as healings and uh, large numbers of conversions and all those things that the world look at, looks at and, and you know numbers in the seats and all the things that we contend to, to be distracted by. Be steady and true. Play the long game. I said that a few times in my past. Play the long game. This is a this is a ministry of years. This is not a, a decade. This is not a ministry that that we want to be a flash in the pan. We want to see steady growth over many years. And I'm talking about growth in people as well as as people who come. If you do that, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. You know, it, it's interesting because. Sometimes we can struggle with disappointment. I know, I, I know you can because you tell me, right? I know that. I know that. But at the same time, I, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I can, I can struggle with disappointment. But I promise you, if you play the long game, if you understand how God works, then 
you won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. Understand then the ministry of prayer. Recognize that preaching and ministry is empowered by the fervent prayers of the saints. Trust that true gospel ministry is fueled by the, those fervent prayers. If, if this church is not effective in preaching the gospel, if, if this church is not effective in seeing uh, believers mature in Christ, ask yourself, am I praying? Am I praying? Ask others, are you praying? We need to be a church that fervently prays for the ministry. If we commit ourselves to these tasks, we will see Christ do a truly amazing work in the body of Christ at Grace Bible Church. I, I can promise you that. I've seen it. I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen among us, and I've seen it happen at other churches, that if we fervently pray, if we commit ourselves to these tasks, we will see God do amazing things. Now, as we get started this morning in Matthew, I want to give one, one note. I am still transitioning to the Legacy Standard Bible, which is now my translation of choice. Uh, I'm still using the New American Standard in some places. I, just full disclosure, I told my wife this this morning, the, the program that I use still has the NAS in it, and so I have to go over and cut and paste into it, and it's, it's a little bit clumsy at times, so, so where I can, I'll, I'll fill in with the NAS, but I am basically transitioning to and will be fully transitioning to uh, the Legacy Standard Bible. I found in my study of it, I found it to be incredibly faithful and I found it to be incredibly helpful. I just would commend you to study, to look at it. And I know that you know there's different, various translations in the body. There's anything from the ESV to uh, the NIV and, and NAS, but I would commend that, uh, that the LSB to you uh, in your study, if you would, uh, be, if you uh, are so inclined. So, with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would be with us as we preach your word, as we receive your word, as the song we just sang said, quoting Scripture, where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Those words, the words of eternal life, are found in Your Word. Father, may we love it, may we proclaim it. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, as I said, we're starting in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 1. So if you could turn in your text to, in your copy of God's Word, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I will read down through verse 17. This is the Word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab was the father of Nashon. 
And Nacon was the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. And Abijah was the father of Asa. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. And Joram was the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah was the father of Jotham. And Jotham was the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh was the father of Amon. And Amon was the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Ebahud. Well, you know, with all these names, you're bound to mess something up. And he was the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, that is. And Eliakim was the father of Azor. And Azor was the father of Zadok. And Zadok was the father of Achim. And Achim was the father of Eliud. And Eliud was the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar was the father of Mathen. And Mathen was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. Today, as we embark on what I would say is a critical study, we will study the four, four critical keys to unlocking the deep truths of the Gospel of Matthew. First, or we must then recognize that the Gospel of Matthew was written using a particular course by making a powerful case in a peculiar, peculiar culture by a profaned character. So with that, let's study the first of four critical keys to help us unlock the truths of the Gospel of Matthew. First, we must realize or recognize that Matthew was written using a particular course. Said another way, the Gospel of Matthew was written in a particular time, in a particular way, in the course of history. Now, it's crucial for us to understand when and how Matthew was written, because this will affect the way you interpret the book. Unfortunately, there's a lot of confusion out there regarding these crucial questions. So let's start by answering the simple question, when was Matthew written and why is it important? The simple answer is that we can't say with absolute certain the year that Matthew was written. But that doesn't mean that the timing of it wasn't or isn't critical. There are two main details that you should comprehend or must comprehend to interpret this gospel correctly. So uh, you can recognize its full contribution to the overall gospel record. First, you need to recognize the order of the writing of the gospels. Now, I would argue that the order is Matthew was written first in the 50s, probably the very early 50s. Mark was written second. And Luke was also in the 50s. And Luke came along, uh, I would argue, probably around 60, 61. 
And John was written later, uh, maybe around A.D. 90. A.D. 90. Now, the order is critical because there are liberal scholars who try to deny the doctrine of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we'll touch more on this in a few moments. Here's, here's the second truth that you need to recognize about the dating of Matthew. You need to recognize that Matthew was written prior to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. You see, Matthew recorded Jesus' prophecy of the temple's destruction in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. He, he said that Jesus said these things about the temple. It says in those uh, words, Jesus, in those verses, that Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to the point to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, the author uh, of Matthew certainly wrote down Jesus' prophecy prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Uh, he, he's attributing this to Jesus' words. Now, again, liberal scholars will attack the power and sufficiency of Scripture by saying that Matthew had to write in hindsight after the destruction. But that's not true. Which brings us to how was Matthew written and why is it important? Said another way, we need to understand Matthew's method as a historian. We must recognize that, that Matthew, along with the other Gospels, are inspired histories of our Lord's life. Let me give you the simplest answer to the question of how he wrote. He, the author wrote his Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as such, he compiled a meticulous and perfect recording of pertinent events in the life and ministry of Christ. He did this from his point of view because he uh, witnessed many of them personally. It's important that we get that. Now I want you to remember two things from this statement. The author first wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Second, the author was an actual eyewitness. He didn't rely, he had no need to rely on others for what he saw. Now, liberal scholars will attack the, the veracity of the gospel record by saying that he used uh, some mysterious document called Q as a reference. Uh, these are called so-called so source theories. Uh, they're another avenue to attack the doctrine of inspiration. They argue that there is a, a mysterious source document called Q, which we no longer have, and, and they also argue that Mark wrote his gospel first. Now, as I said earlier, the order of the gospels is critical. Liberal scholars say this because Mark is shorter and because Matthew and Mark share many of the same accounts. So they say that the author of Matthew used Mark's gospel and Q to patch together his longer gospel record. Now, church, we need to reject those theories. We have to ask ourselves, why would the author use another, or some other unknown source to record events, or even use Mark, for that matter, to record events that he actually witnessed? Why would he do that? He wrote, the author wrote his gospel under the ministry or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit based on what he observed with his own eyes. We don't have to fall into that trap. Here at Grace Bible Church, we firmly believe that the author wrote his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that his gospel came first, 
Uh, we know this because it was attested by the early fathers. Origen writes, the first was written, he writes in 185 AD, uh, to, or between 185 and 254, he writes, the first was written, was it first written was that according to the one-time tax collector, but later apostle of Jesus Christ, Matthew, who published it for the believers from Judaism. That's origin. Clement of Alexandria is in AD two fifteen from AD two fifteen to one fifty quoted Eusebius, who supports origin. He says this. Uh, Clement has set down a tradition of the earliest elders about the order of the, the Gospels, and it has this form. He used to say that the earliest written Gospels were those containing the genealogies, which are Matthew and Luke. Now, I may differ a little bit there, but ultimately, uh, the main thing is to understand that Matthew came first. Now, we've seen the first key, that Matthew was written in a particular time and in a particular way. In the course of history, let's study the second critical key to unlocking the deep truths found in the Gospel of Matthew. You must recognize that Matthew was written making a powerful case. Making a powerful case. The Gospel of Matthew makes truly a truly powerful case because when we understand the timing of the writing and the fact that it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by an actual eyewitness, when we understand that, it makes this powerful case. Now, to fully understand Matthew, we must ask ourselves two questions. What is Matthew's theme? What is Matthew's theme is the first one. Put simply, the author presents a, an airtight case an airtight case that Jesus is the long-awaited Messianic King. His theme is literally Jesus is King. Look at the text in Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in this verse, we have three uh, divine titles. We have the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. First, Jesus is the Christ, the is Christ the Messiah. We must understand that, that the, the name or the, the Christ is not Jesus' last name, you know, like Bob Smith. It's not Jesus Christ in that first and last name. It's, it's a title. It's the, the Messiah. Uh, according to the author, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Now, by, by giving uh, these divine titles, he makes the unmistakable point that, that he is the divine king, the Son of God. Skip down to Matthew 1.16. Since Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Again, again the author makes uh, the point that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Messiah. Look at verse 17. Therefore, all generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So again, we see this reference to, to Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. Look down at Matthew 1.18. Now, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So, so this... Messianic title, Christos in the Greek, is the common thread which weaves its way through this author's account, through the author's account of Jesus' genealogy. Again, the author uh, carefully makes the case that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He was sent by the Father on a saving mission. Matthew 
spells this out clearly. Look at Matthew 1, 19-23. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You see, Matthew, in this first chapter, in these first few verses, Matthew has very clearly articulated that Jesus uh, is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, sent by the Father to to save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew makes this clear with another title for Jesus. In in the Gospels, the the Lord Jesus uh, very very often uses the title Son of Man. He actually uses that title more than any other. This this title has strong messianic undertones. It refers back to Daniel, where uh, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold... This is Daniel seven thirteen and 14. And behold, uh, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and, and came near before him. And to him, uh, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. And his, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You, you see this? Uh, this title, the Son of Man, uh, references back to Daniel 7, but it not only references back to Daniel 7, but I would argue it leads forward to Revelation 5 where John describes the the lion from the tribe of Judah who opens the scroll, setting off the the events of Revelation and Revelation Revelation 5.5. One of the elders said to John, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, uh, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seal. So so we see there in Revelation 5 the Son of Man approaching the throne uh, because he is worthy. Now Matthew records Jesus using this title, Son of Man, in several verses. I'll just give you the verse references uh, for most of them. Matthew 8.20, Matthew 9.6, Matthew 10.23, Matthew 11.19, Matthew 12.8, Matthew 12.32, Matthew 12.40, Matthew 13.37, Matthew 13.37. 13.41, you get the point that in the first 13 chapters there's several references to this title which clearly shows that he's referencing back to this Daniel 7 uh, passage. Now turn back, turn briefly to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. So we're beginning, and we're beginning our study of Matthew uh, 16 chapters in. And we're doing so because I want to take you to the to the climax, what I believe is the climax of this gospel. I, I would argue that Matthew 16 and 17 are designed to be the mountain peak, so to speak, uh, of Matthew's gospel. In, in them, there are in those chapters there are several references to the Son of Man. I want to I want to give you a brief taste 
of Matthew's powerful case that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah. Look in verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, clearly He's referring back again. He's referring back to this Daniel 7. The Daniel 7, the reference to the Son of Man. Now, the disciples give various answers. And, and in verse 15, He said to them, verse 15, look at your text, He says, but who do you say that I am? Now, did you catch the turn of words in that verse? First He said, who do they say the Son of Man is? But now He's saying, who do they say I am? Now, I would argue that in this verse, Jesus is saying that He is the Son of Man. This is where Peter this is where Peter answers. He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Verse sixteen. Then Pete, Jesus tells Peter that he will build his church and give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which obviously are very important verses, but not necessarily to what we're getting at here this morning. But we'll study those later. But then in verse twenty, he warned the, the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And after after he reveals that he is the Christ the Son of Man, he, he said, and it says in verse 21, he began, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, in, in Matthew 16, 24, He starts calling His followers to take up their cross and follow Him. In other words, He says He will suffer. He's going to suffer. But now He's saying that His followers will suffer as well. Uh, that they will need to take up their cross and follow Him. Now look at Matthew 16, 27-28. It says this, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father's Father with His angels, and He will then, and will then repay every man according to His deeds. Truly I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So, there's suffering, but then in the future, after the suffering, the Son of Man is going to come in glory. Now, look down at Matthew 17. Now, I said literally that, that this is the climax of Matthew. This is the mountain peak of Matthew. Uh, in, in verse 1, uh, it, it describes, verses 1 through 8, describes Jesus going up on the mountain and showing His glory to Peter, James, and John. He gives them, he gives them a glimpse. This, this is gold, beloved. He gives them a, a, a glimpse of the glory that will come after their suffering. After His suffering on the cross, and after their suffering, He gives them this brief glimpse. Powerful. Powerful. It's, I, again, the, I believe this is the climax. This is the mountain peak of, of Matthew's Gospel. And as they were, verse 9, 7, Matthew 7, 79, as they were coming down from the mountain, uh, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. In verse 12, He reiterated to them, But I say to you, uh, Elijah, that Elijah already came. He's referencing to John the Baptist, and they did not recognize him, but did, excuse me, did to him what, whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. 
Again, in, in 70, 22, and 23, you know, and while gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were grieved, deeply grieved. Now, to sum this up, in Matthew 16 and 17, Matthew makes the powerful case, the powerful case that, that Jesus is the Son of Man who would suffer and die, but that He would be raised from the dead and that He would ascend to the throne of God and that in the future He will return in glory as the conquering King and judge every man according to His deeds. In Matthew 19.28, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you you who have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His throne, you shall also you also shall sit on, on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of, of Israel. That's a promise to his twelve uh, disciples, twelve apostles. And Jesus goes on in Matthew's account, he goes on to give several more references to the title, Son of Man. So in this gospel, the author is crystal clear about who Christ is. Crystal clear. Crystal clear. So what is, what is Matthew's purpose for writing this Gospel? Now, I would argue that Matthew clearly presents Jesus as the long-awaited divine King who came to earth, won redemption for His people, suffered and died on the cross, and was resurrected from the grave. He has ascended to the throne of God and will be returning in triumphant glory as the conquering King. We're in for an incredible journey as we study through this Gospel. Well, we've seen the first two keys. Matthew was written using a particular course by make, and by making a powerful case. Let's study the third of four uh, critical keys to unlocking the deep truths found in the Gospel of Matthew. Third, you must recognize Matthew was written in a peculiar culture. To understand the Gospel of Matthew, you need to understand the historical setting. So what was that historical setting? Well, what we need to see is that Israel's history, uh, that Israel's history was, was uh, in, in their history, they were subjected to a series of foreign powers. So you had David, and then you had Solomon. The, the, the kingdom was split uh, uh, after Solomon. And then uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into cap- captivity. And, and then after that, uh, the, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity. Uh, they were taken into captivity in, in Babylon. Now, in Daniel 7 again, turn there. I want to give you a, a brief history brief history lesson. In Daniel 7.3, he mentions, Daniel mentions four great beasts. It says in four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Now, these beasts represent four consecutive world empires. In Daniel 7.4, he describes Babylon, which is the empire that he was taken captive along with Judah. 
In 7.4 it says, The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle, and I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Now this beast, this first beast is pretty clear. It was Babylon whose palaces were guarded by uh, statues of winged lions. Now Daniel would have witnessed this empire in his own day because he had been taken captive uh, into that, that, uh, that empire. So every day, you would think that he would have looked out and he would have seen these statues. Now look at the second beast in Daniel 7.5. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise and devour much meat. In this verse, he describes Medo-Persia. Uh, This verse describes Persia's invincible war machine. The the ribs refer to the the nations it was to conquer. Now look at at the third beast in Daniel 7.6. And after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and on its back the four wings of a bird. And and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now here, uh, he describes Greece. Uh, during the reign of Alexander the Great. The leopard represents speed and, and swiftness, and history tells us that Alexander the Great conquered the known world in 13 years. Uh, it's just a, a swift covering of the world. Now, the, the four heads are the four generals who divided the kingdom after Alexander's death. Now look at the fourth kingdom in Daniel 7, 7 verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Now, in this verse, he's describing Rome. Uh, He prophesied the Roman Empire. He prophesied that the Roman Empire would be dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. He said that the Roman Empire would be different, unlike anything that had come before it. And we know from history that that Rome literally devoured and crushed and trampled everything that lay in their way. Now here's the question we have to answer. How did Israel relate to Rome? Well, during the time of Christ, Israel was under Roman rule. Now, what we have to understand is they, the, the Israel, absolutely hated the fact that they were under their rule. And I can't say enough about their hatred for uh, the Roman rule. Now, this created a, a, what I would call a peculiar situation in Israel, especially in Jerusalem. You see, Israel, the Jews, had uh, much national pride. They were proud of their heritage. So this, this fact that, that they were under Roman rule uh, was, was not palatable to them. Again, they hated it. After all, they were God's chosen people, right? I mean, they, they, they were proud of that fact. They were children of Abraham. They were, David and Solomon had been their kings. Yet, since the fall of Judah, they had answered to these Gentile rulers. Now, when our Lord came, again, they were under Roman rule, and and Rome ruled with a rod of iron. Israel's national pride and and Roman rule produced this odd interface between the Roman officials and the Jewish 
religious authorities. They, they despised the, the Romans with everything they had in them. But the situation put some Jews in the peculiar position of working with the Roman officials. Some worked with them outwardly. They, they, these were despised for being sellouts. Others worked with the Roman officials behind closed doors, you know, in, in the dark places. These men deviously schemed to stay in good with the Romans, and, and they, but they wanted to be seen in a, in a good light by the people. So these people were a treacherous lot. These people were a treacherous lot. Now, of the two groups, who do you think was cast as being a treacherous lot? The ones who worked with them outwardly, right? Not, not the ones who did it behind closed doors. In the providence of God, this was the perfect setting for God to send His Son on a saving mission. So we've seen the first three keys. Matthew was written using a particular course by making a powerful case in a, in a peculiar culture. Let's study the fourth and last critical key to help us unlock the deep truths it found in the Gospel of Matthew. And I promise you this is gold. I promise you this is gold. You must recognize that Matthew was written by a profane character. By a profane character. Throughout this, this sermon, I have spoke of this gospel title, Matthew, but I have uh, referred mostly to the author of this text without saying specifically who that is. Truly, that should have niggled you. You know, it should have bothered you like a, having a small stone in your, in your shoe. You should be asking, why would he keep referring to the author? The author. Isn't it obvious who the author is? Is not the book, the title of the book, Matthew? Well, I did this because there, I mean, there's debate as to whether he's the actual author. But the question is, who is the author? Well, let me give you a, an extremely profound answer. And I'm not kidding. This is profound. Believe me. Believe me, it's profound. You see... Matthew, the tax collector, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. That's profound. I know. Pretty obvious, right? In other words, Matthew wrote Matthew. You may ask, why would I say this is profound? Well, put simply, Matthew was a tax collector who worked for the despised Romans. He was an outcast of Jewish society. He was the lowest of the low. He was the last person that you would think would write this gospel. The absolute last person. If you were in Jewish society, you would not have thought Matthew was the guy to write the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But isn't that how the Lord works? Isn't that how He works? Again, there's people who try to cast doubt on the authorship, but it, it has been the universal conviction for almost two millennia that there are two objective ways that we know Matthew wrote Matthew. The early manuscripts bear his name, and the early church fathers attest to his, his authorship. So, put simply, Matthew wrote first, and Matthew wrote Matthew. That's it. That's what we believe. So, the question is, who was Matthew and what was his background? Well, we need to understand Matthew, Matthew the writer, Matthew the author, Matthew the gospel writer, because uh, we will spend a lot of time in the gospel he wrote. Maybe even a few years. Maybe not ten. 
Hopefully not. Well, the best way to get to know a fellow Christian is by listening to their testimony, is it not? Well, Matthew recorded his own testimony in this Gospel account. Turn with me to Matthew 9.9. His account is not very long. A few verses. But I trust that you will find it to be incredibly profound. Verse 9. And Jesus went on from there and He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth and He said to him, Follow Me. And He got up and He followed Him. Now Matthew is a tax collector. We've already said that. Now, what does that mean? Earlier we saw that Israel was under the political, is under the political control of the Roman Empire. Now, as we know, the Roman Empire was extremely strong militarily, but anytime you have a strong military, as we know in our own nation, that comes at a high cost. If somebody has to pay for this. Therefore, the empire needed to collect taxes from the people they conquered. So they would conquer people, and then they would begin to exact taxes in order to pay for the military machine. So the world, including Israel, had endured subjugation by these by these four nations, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But by Matthew's day, Rome ruled over Israel and, and most of the known world. And they had developed a vast system of taxation to raise money for their war machine. Here in our own United States, our tax system can seem demanding to those who work to make a living. It seems demanding to me. I've paid a lot of taxes over the past few years. But, but you know, I can promise you that, that the... the even though our system uh, may seem onerous to you, I can promise you that we should recognize that Rome was far more demanding and far more onerous than the United States. We must understand then uh, the, the system of taxation in Rome or the Roman system of taxation to better appreciate Matthew's position as a tax collector. And we also need to understand the culture of Israel to understand what was going on with Matthew. Now, the Roman Empire was divided into districts overseen by governors and mass magistrates. Now, all had a requirement of raising funds through taxes to support Rome. Here in the United States, we have the IRS. Oh, by the way, they're, they're hiring 87,000 more agents, so uh, watch out, right? Not many, you know, not many of us are fond of the IRS. I mean, we don't invite those people over to dinner. I don't, you know, obviously you may know someone and you would love them, and that's fine, but you get the point. But the, the IRS is part of the United States government. Now, when I say part of the United States government, they get paid by the government. Now, they, they do. The IRS does use businesses to collect taxes. Now, now, again, our system, as flawed as it is, our system is incredibly fair compared to the Roman system. You see, Rome didn't actually collect their own taxes. They passed that obligation to what amounted to tax farmers or publicans. Uh, Rome would look at a region as a whole and estimate the taxes they needed to collect from that area, the, the amount of money they needed to bring in from that particular area. Now, they would auction or they would sell a franchise to raise those taxes. So, Rome set the amount for these, these regions had to produce, and, and, but unlike IRS agents that we know of, these publicans didn't get paid by the government to, to collect taxes but they were able to collect 
or are able to keep, that is, anything they collected above Rome's uh, required taxation. So they collected as much as possible in order to enrich themselves. That's the point. And, and this, this created a, an incredibly effective system because they were able to exact the taxes, but it was a, an incredibly corrupt system. And the people of Israel, for many reasons, because of national pride, because of the fact that they were getting taxed by, on everything that moved, uh, they hated the Roman system of taxation. Quite literally, uh, the tax collectors had the backing of the power of imperial Rome to collect taxes. Borrowing from a line in Star Trek, resistance was truly futile. They literally taxed everything possible. And you could say it was legalized extortion, it was legalized theft, all licensed back, and even encouraged by the Roman government. Add to this, there were multiple layers in the system. Chief tax collectors hired low, lower tax collectors. They, they, they were each given an amount to collect. Now, these junior tax collectors made their living by adding another premium on top of the already onerous requirement. Uh, they were making themselves rich at every level of the system. So what do you think the people thought of these tax collectors? I mean, think about how we think of tax collectors, right? I mean, I'm not saying that you should hate the tax, uh, you know, tax people, but the point is, is that you know, we don't like paying those taxes, even though we are bound to do so. But here in Rome, or in Israel, they were utterly, absolutely despised. They were the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth, not fit for society. They were traitors to their people. They were literal sellouts to Rome. You see, uh, their own people would become tax collectors, and, and they would... Uh, exact these taxes from their own people and they would make themselves rich in doing so. And the Jews utterly despised the Roman occupation, so they truly hated those who hated Rome, especially who participated in this wicked system of taxation. You see, no self-respecting Jew would ever be a tax collector. No self-respecting Jew would even associate with a tax collector. The Jews hated them, and worse yet, they regarded them as being ceremonially unclean. You see, they had daily contact with these unclean Romans. Now, as we will see in our study, the, the Pharisees, the legalists of the day, of Matthew's day, they, they greatly expanded the law's requirements, and they added a myriad of man-made rules to the law. More than anything, they were incredibly obsessed over what was clean and unclean. According to the, to the Pharisees, if you came into contact with something that was ceremonially unclean, then you were unclean. You were defiled. And, and as such, there's a, a grave spiritual con consequence for coming into contact with uh, unclean things. No one willingly put themselves in that position. So according to them, Romans were unclean. And oh, by the way, the money that they handled was unclean as well. And tax collectors came into contact with both multiple times a day. They were considered ceremonially unclean. Therefore, they, get this, were excluded from civil life and they were excluded from religious life. They were hated from all directions. They were hated from all directions. According to Matthew 9.9, then, Matthew was a tax collector. Therefore, he was considered to be defiled. 
He was a complete outcast from society. No one would even associate with him. And he was a religious and social outcast. You might say that he was untouchable. And worse than that, he had no hope for salvation according to the Jewish system. You see, Matthew was utterly lost. Lost to the uttermost. Look back in Matthew 9.9. Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. He was a man who was an extortionist, a traitor to Israel with no hope for eternal life. He had no place in this world or in the next. He had been ignored except when he was enduring anger and sneering from his countrymen. Then Jesus simply comes up and says, follow me. It's a simple, yet incredibly profound command. Even the simple act of talking to Matthew would have invited hatred. But Jesus was inviting him to follow him. This was downright shocking. It was scandalous for Jesus to tell him to follow. Uh, now the word, uh, the verb translated follow me was a command that Jesus expected Matthew to obey. You see, Matthew had no choice. See, Jesus spoke directly to Matthew's heart. Matthew couldn't say no. It's called irresistible grace, right? Matthew immediately obeyed. And Matthew would follow Christ, follow the Lord from that day forward, and he would keep following Him forever. Luke's Gospel tells us that Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. That's in Luke 5.28. You see, most likely, Matthew was a wealthy man. Tax collectors were known to be some of the wealthiest in that society. I mean, we know why, right? I mean, they were stealing from everyone. Truly, he may have given up more than any of the other disciples to follow Christ. He definitely gave up his livelihood. After walking out and leaving everything behind, there would have been a line of people to take his place. I mean, think about that. Think about it. The nature of his conversion cannot be overstated. John Newton comes close. It, it makes me think of the hymn Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I couldn't help but sing. Look at the text in verse 10. Then it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. The stories of God's grace are always my favorite. How do we know that Matthew's conversion was genuine? Well, it's the same way we know anyone's salvation is real. It's interesting, we studied this morning, I mentioned it a couple of times, 1 Thessalonians this morning. And that, that we know from, from Paul's writing that they, the Thessalonians turned from their idols to serve a living and true God. 
And then he argues in, in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, that it's, it's their faith, it's their true faith, their true conversion, that, that, they, that they had not believed in vain. They, they had believed in the past and they continued to believe. And that was proof of the ministry that Paul had with them. So how do we know Matthew's conversion was genuine? Because he dropped everything. Follow Christ. And the fruit of Matthew's salvation was immediate and it was everlasting. My pastor in California, he says that this conversion and any conversion, he says when conversion is real, fruit always follows. I like that. So after his conversion, Matthew prepared a feast. He knew what Jesus had done for him, so he wanted his friends to know Christ. But there was a problem. Not only was Matthew an outcast, not only was Matthew a tax collector, but guess who outcasts associate with? Other outcasts, right? You see, Jesus went to dine with Matthew, but in doing so, Jesus dined with all these other sinners. And, and oh, by the way, uh, we have to understand the, the incredible uh, uh, intimacy of this scene. Here Jesus was having intimate fellowship with the lowest of the low. And the Pharisees were absolutely, absolutely offended. <coughs> they were offended that Jesus would have contact with them, much less have intimate fellowship with them. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? You can just see the sneering. Why is he doing that? Doesn't he know? We can't uh, overemphasize the scandalous nature of this thief. The, the, <clears throat> the Pharisees were absolutely stupefied. You see, they absolutely hated tax collectors. As we've seen, they hated them on religious grounds. And they, they hated them on political grounds. And, and here was our Lord dining with them. So they asked, why, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Look down at the text in verse 12. When Jesus heard this, when he heard, he said, is it not those who are healthy who need a physician? But those who are sick. You see, this is a strong rebuke. He basically says, you know, you've got salvation worked out on your own terms. You know, you follow these rules and, and they're onerous on the people, but you follow these rules and, and, and you'll be saved. So I've come to, to help those who know their loss and know their need. They knew they were out. They knew they had no hope for salvation in this system. In their minds, they were not savable. Yet, here's the marvelous truth. The marvelous grace of our loving Lord. The marvelous grace of our loving Lord. You see, they were not out of reach of God's grace. Jesus came for them. <coughs> he didn't come for the self-righteous. He came for sinners. He came to save sinners. Now you may ask, why did Matthew's background matter? 
Beloved, the word gospel means good news. Let me give you some good news. Jesus came to save sinners like Matthew. Matthew's background should matter to us because it mattered to God. He saved Matthew despite his background. In the words of Martin Luther, is it not wonderful news that salvation lies outside of ourselves? If you recognize your need for Him this morning, He will save you too. No matter, no matter your background, no matter what you've done in your life, you are not beyond God's grace. Let me give you three simple lessons we can glean from Matthew's testimony as we close today. First, God delights in saving sinners like Matthew. Nothing about Matthew gave him any favor with God. Yet, Jesus personally called him and commanded him to follow him. If you are a believer, I can promise you, your story is the same as Matthew's. That sometime in the past, He called you to follow Him. And if you are a believer here today, I can promise you that you will follow Him forever. It's a guarantee. As, as it's it's the, the guarantee of guarantees. Stamp it. Signed, sealed, delivered. If you're a believer. If you're not a believer, ask yourself, is He calling you today? Is He saying, follow me to you today? I mean, He's not going to say it in an audible voice, but you will know if He's saying, follow me. And I can promise you it will be irresistible. Irresistible if He's calling you. It was irresistible to Matthew. Later on, there's a, a tax collector called Zacchaeus. It was absolutely irresistible to him. It was irresistible to all the other uh, disciples who knew him. No different today. Second, second thing we learn: the fruit of salvation always follows true faith in Christ. Paul teaches this in Ephesians two ten. He says, "For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him so that we would walk in them." James, as you may know, it says that faith without works is a dead faith. Beloved, true faith. True faith always produces true fruit. Third thing we learn. Third thing. The fruit of self-righteousness is always condemnation. The fruit of self-righteousness is always condemnation. The fruit of grace is genuine faith. Beloved, salvation is God's response to the desperate. To the desperate. Matthew knew his need of grace and he responded by obeying Christ. Let me give you one last, I said three, I think. Let me give you one last lesson that we learn. We are all profaned like Matthew. And we all need Jesus. My question is will you admit your need of him today? Will you cry out to Him to save you? Friend, I ask you, will you follow Him? Your answer to this question is most assuredly.
Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning, this early afternoon, for this text of Scripture, for this gospel message of good news. Father, I pray that as Christians, those who know you, that we will follow you all the days of our lives, that we would never shrink back. I pray for those who don't know you here today, if they're hearing that call to follow, that they would answer, they would obey, or that they would understand it's irresistible. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.